Anyone who wants to fight me all the time, committee meetings, board meetings, facing death was how they knew they were alive. Or was it more about allocating resources like your dad said? It's hard to step outside what your DNA tells you to do. Nice tits. Family farm, fight club, it's all one, yet distinctions are what separates the librarian, reflective man from the road and bridge crew. That's a class statement. Us guys love our children and will, circumstances dictating, fight for you. Anyone who wants to fight me all the time is more important to me than my wife. But there is no one left to fight, and no one knows me, and I know no one well. That's good. There's more space between people than I'd ever dared to hope. I'm confused. Mediator or gunfighter? Either could come to know himself, flat abs, clear sight, with patience and discipline. What's this? Know yourself? Once your knee or neck is smashed, there's no getting up to fight. Anyone who wants to fight me all the time will grow old alone once I'm in the ground. He will live with the question, what was our purpose? He was managed by the molecules were made of proteins, enzymes, amino acids, DNA, DNA. I'd rather be a rock. But the rock is subject to its elements. Thus the periodic table and particle physics, meiosis and mitosis, and yes, democracy and self-governance, all the colors of anthropology and ecology, windmills and sundials, fission and fusion for evil and light, and the devil who exists to carry the load when we misbehave and fight among ourselves. Anyone who wants to fight me all the time is how I know who I am. Because the truth is always changing depending on the meeting, what's good? Service to others is a safe bet. That service may take many forms, fighting, meeting, teaching, making. The fighting may be part of holding community together. Limited scope, defensive posture. How broadly we define communities says everything. So we come to Mexico, a violent border and an unhappy history, or Gaza and Israel, or Russia and just about everybody. How can a people become a nation without resorting to violence or incurring violent reaction? Does it matter? Accept violence like any EMT and devote yourself to what? Beauty? Why do I write about violence? I've almost never had to fight. Anyone who wants to fight me all the time is nothing compared to the ocean which can take your children any time. The Nazis, Berganja weed, in peace we have our meetings. When violence comes to the neighborhood, the hierarchy of communicants will hold or fold. It is then the peace work proves relevant. Hold your clod of land. Give way to the waves. All I do not know. I admire the writer who penetrates the unknown by describing that which is not himself, his enemy. Anyone who wants to fight him all the time helps him live outside himself. Robert Rhinow, soon I will know who I am. The script jumps from outside the house in Villeperdue to inside. Interior, Villeperdue slash house, night. The women are inside the front room of one of the abandoned houses. The kitchen is off the front room. The script says... The kitchen and living room windows have been barricaded, and Lena and Thornton are positioning a heavy dresser to jam the front door. Once it's in place, Lena turns to the others. Lena, you all get some sleep. I'm keeping first watch. But the scene is less formalized, less robust. Thornton sits in a chair to the right, facing into the living room. Raddick is off beyond her on the right, barely visible. Lena is beyond Raddick near the windows on the far wall, the front of the house. Minute six, we looked in on a similar living room from a similar kitchen. Lena sat on the couch then, left of center. Overlaying the frames, one might imagine that Thornton now is watching Lena then, instead of Lena now. Second two cut to Ventress, framed at the entry between dining room and kitchen. We never had this angle in Lena's and Kane's house. And strangely, 
There is no chair knocked over by the table as there was visible just last minute when Ventress walked there from the entryway. Maybe she picked it up, but the way she has her rifle in both hands suggests that she would not have taken the time. The dining room table and chair are bamboo and wicker. A refrigerator sits near the dining room table behind Ventress. A circulating fan sits on top of the refrigerator. Mossy growth hangs from the light over the table. This feels like a house in a warm, swampy location, only partly overtaken because of the shimmer, and partly overtaken simply by the natural elements. Ventress walks toward camera, into the kitchen, and turns to the right to head into the living room. A clock on the wall in the dining room tells us that it is just a couple minutes past four. Second six cut to Thornton, agitated, roughly pulling up the wrists of her hoodie, which she has only just put on. She sits in a recliner, a standing lamp behind it, a small table with another lamp to the left, to the right inside the kitchen, a wooden chair. Ventress enters frame from right, passes to the left, Thornton continues to fiddle with her sleeves. Second eleven violates the 180-degree rule with reverse on Ventress, almost a POV shot upward from Thornton, except Thornton is too preoccupied with her sleeves to be looking this way. Ventress looks to the right, toward the front windows. Dr. Ventress. All right. Yes, this is the bedroom. Cut to a new angle on Thornton, second 15, framed almost impossibly so that her seat is aligned with one of the empty chairs in the dining room, blurry beyond. The echo of the chair where Lena sat across from Kane and he told her about being outside the room when he drank water and he bled into the glass. Thornton looks down. She raises her right hand and looks at her fingers. Dr. Ventress continued off screen. Let's secure, secure doors, doors and, and windows. windows. Thornton opens her hand, one finger at a time. An echo of Kane, perhaps, in minute eight, which drew me then and draws me again now toward Girl Interrupted, Susanna Kaysen. Quote, Instead, I looked at my hand. It occurred to me that my palm looked like a monkey's palm. The crinkly of the three lines running across it and the way my fingers curled in seemed simian to me. If I spread my fingers out, my hand looked more human, so I did that but it was tiring holding my fingers apart. I let them relax, and then the monkey idea came back. I turned my hand over quickly. The back of it wasn't much better. My veins bulged, maybe because it was such a hot day, and the skin around my knuckles was wrinkly and loose. If I moved my hand, I could see the three long bones that stretched out from the wrist to the first joint of my fingers. Perhaps those weren't bones, but tendons. I poked one. It was resilient, so probably it was a tendon. Underneath, though, were bones. At least I hoped so. I poked deeper to feel the bones. They were hard to find. Knuckle bones were easy, but I wanted to find the hand bones, the long ones going from my wrist to my fingers. I started getting worried. Where were my bones? I put my hand in my mouth and bit it, to see if I crunched down on something hard. Everything slid away from me. There were nerves, there were blood vessels, there were tendons. All these things were slippery and elusive. I began scratching at the back of my hand. My plan was to get hold of a flap of skin and peel it away just to have a look. I wanted to see that my hand was a normal human hand with bones. My hands got red and white, but I couldn't get my skin to open up and let me in. I put my hand in my mouth and chomped. Success. A bubble of blood came out near my last knuckle, where my incisor had pierced the skin. End quote. Second 22 POV shot of Thornton's hands. Right hand open, palm up, left hand below it a fist lying on the rifle in her lap. She starts to close her hand, and between the play of light and shadow and our own imaginations reaching for what she might see, we might 
imagine that we see movement under the skin. We might also wonder why a paramedic on a military mission has a ring on her right hand ring finger and another on her left thumb. We will see in a few minutes that the ring on her right hand is a silver beetle, possibly a scarab. We might never get a good look at the thumb ring. We might wonder what attachments Thornson has, or had. We know she is a paramedic. We know she is sober. We know she has been increasingly agitated by her current circumstances. We don't know who there was in her life before, who she might miss now on this suicide mission. A wife, a lover, a family. Or maybe we do not care because there is movement in her hand. A rather subtle piece of CGI. Thornson's lifeline moves toward the center of her hand, which it should as she closes her hand, but it moves early, like it is still figuring out what it must do, and then back toward the thumb, even as the hand keeps closing. Some separate thing inside her trying to emerge, or some part of her true self having trouble hiding here in the shimmer. Cut second 25 back to Thornson from the side. She abruptly puts her hand down and sits forward in the chair. She starts to turn her head to the right, stops, then turns her head to the right. If we are paying attention, we know that Raddick is behind us to the left. Ventress is too far to the right. Thornson's attention is drawn toward Lena. Second 29, reverse. Lena, backlit by one of the front windows. And she knows Thornson is staring. And she knows from the walk from Fort Amaya that Thornson is not doing well. Second 32, reverse. A different angle on Thornson. Still from her right, but forward. Beyond her now is a washing machine in the kitchen. Her stare is intense, her eyes red. She breathes hard. What does her silence hide? Gina Rodriguez tells Clark Collis Entertainment Weekly, 20th February 2018, quote, I transformed a little bit. My character goes through quite the transformation and I was experiencing it in real life. I am a sci-fi fiend and Alex's Ex Machina was my favorite movie that year. I was starstruck on our first meeting and the script was so twisted and delicious and my journey was so wicked awesome. There's nothing better than being able to play in a playground most people wouldn't let me play in. It was definitely freeing to be with my sisters. Natalie is so egoless. And Jennifer Jason Lee is just so smart. And I fell in love with Tessa. It was a very special experience. I'd do it all over again. It's such a breath of fresh air for it to just be these humans, who happen to be women, going into a scary, mysterious area and trying to stop it from taking over the world. It's not like, yay, women do it better than men. It's like... This is what it is. Bam. Yeah, she's a lesbian. That's what she likes. Big deal. You don't have to wave a flag. End quote. She tells Brian Truitt, USA Today, 21st February 2018, quote, There are all these little nuggets and trinkets to play. The little inkling that Anya was an addict right away, boom, let me decide what drug she was addicted to. Or maybe it was food or sex. If that's her fear of losing control or losing one's mind, then clearly when her team is in the shimmer, they face their own mortality, and what does that look like to them? I'm a grown woman. I've definitely done drugs. I don't think anybody should. I don't suggest that, but I know that fear of departing from one's reality, and that is not a good place to be in. I'm going to be honest. I suffer from depression and anxiety. I wouldn't even say suffer. I combat it. But because of that, I didn't realize until after I did the movie, how I was drawn to it myself because of my fear of mental health and mental illness history in my family. There's nothing better than to use your art as therapy, as discovery, as crossing somewhere that you're really scared of. End quote. She describes her upcoming role as Thornson in Latina Magazine, August 2016. Quote, 
I think it all plays into the idea of being your own hero, and not feeling like you have to live up to other people's expectations. I am not my beauty. Who I am is not my fucking hair. And to be an actor is to transform. To represent a community is to commit to give my entire all. So if I'm going to represent Latinos in the industry and in art, if I'm going to represent my little cousins in Chicago, they're going to know that I went full out. Who are we afraid of? What are we afraid of? The worst thing that can happen is we die. Anything else you can handle. End quote. Guitar comes into the soundtrack and we smash cut second 36 from Thornton's stare to darkness. Moonlit bodies lying on the floor. Hard to identify until the farthest one stirs and rises onto one arm. Lena. She hesitates, checking to see if anyone else is awake, surely, before carefully getting into a crouched position. Then she reaches into her pack, looks around one more time, before starting to remove something. In the script, instead of a smash cut, we get exterior, the moon, night. The moon in the sky through the shimmer. Interior, Vilperdue slash house slash front room, night. Lena sits at the dining table. The room is lit by her upended flashlight. She's removed the top, exposing the bulb like a candle. She's watching the other three, laid out on their bedding, their soft breathing, satisfying herself that they're all asleep. Then she quietly opens her backpack, removes a small case. Inside is the equipment we saw her select from the Southern Reach Laboratory. A field microscope. A scalpel. She removes a blade from a sealed foil packet. Clips a blade into the scalpel. Then she rolls up her left shirt sleeve. It reveals her forearm. And the unexplained bruise she first noticed while talking to Shepard as they paddled through the swamp. The mark is now darker. And larger. Roughly circular. With a slight indication of a pattern. It's as if the bruise were painted with ink on wet paper and the marks are blurred into something too abstract to understand. Lena gazes at the strange, oddly malign shape. In the film, the transition is faster. Lena removes something from her pack and we smash cut again to close on microscope. Petri dish to the left, ocular lens to the right. And beyond it, Lena's hand holding what might be a pen, blurry, silhouetted. She raises and moves it closer to camera, and just as it becomes clear that it is some sort of scalpel and not a pen... We cut, second 55, to angle from above. Microscope roughly center frame, Lena's left arm right of it, flat on the table. Wedding ring on ring finger, watch band on wrist, strange bruise on forearm. Then she pushes the scalpel into it, drawing blood from the dark marks. A beat. The script says the sight of the crimson bead has hypnotized her. Lena's head begins to come into bottom of frame, leaning over her arm in the bead of blood. And time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside. Annihilation. 